going to ask Caroline, who's going to come up now and read, beginning Matthew 27 and verse 11. Thank you. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. 
In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lamak Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those standing there heard this. They said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. I want to uh, start with a question, which you can answer if you know the answer, apart from Josh, because he saw my notes, I think. Um, On the 7th of February, 1952, British newspapers were dominated by one headline. Can anybody tell me what it was? No, not you, Josh. 1952, 7th of February. That's right. Thank you, John. Early in the morning, um, King George VI, on the 7th of February, 1952, passed away peacefully in his sleep uh, at Sandringham. And the young Princess Elizabeth, our current monarch, would soon be named Queen. And she has faithfully served us up to this day. In due course, obviously, the Queen will one day pass away, and uh, we will mourn that as a country, as a nation. And no doubt there will be programmes on the the TV that tell us uh, about the Queen's achievements. But I think I can be uh, accurate in saying there won't be any programmes that will tell us about the Queen's death or celebrate the Queen's death. Because we celebrate life, do we not? We don't celebrate death. And yet the contrast uh, here with the death of God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ, could not have been more marked. Yes, Jesus died, but it was in his death that he achieved his greatest victory. So that's why we celebrate this day, the death of of Jesus Christ. Now the cross is one of the most recognized symbols in the world and yet for many people its true meaning has been lost. We have become all too familiar with the symbol of the cross. It's become 
a fashion, a fashion item, something that you see on a t-shirt or people wear on their jewellery. And for many people, it has really lost its real meaning. The familiarity of the image has blinded us to the horror of it for so many people. How would you feel this morning if someone came into our church with a t-shirt that had uh, an executioner with an axe or a picture of a hangman's noose or an electric chair or a guillotine? I think we would all be a little bit shocked and probably a little bit worried. I mean, these things that I have just mentioned are symbols of execution. You see, the cross was the barbaric and shocking method of execution. This was not a symbol that you would wear on a T-shirt. It was a punishment reserved for the very worst criminals. It was meant to inflict the maximum amount of pain over the longest period of time. A slow and painful death awaited anyone who found himself on a cross. And yet, here we are. We celebrate the death of Jesus Christ on a cross. So how do we interpret the events, the events of the crucifixion? I've only got three points this morning. And these are the points. First of all, the cross reveals to us a problem. Secondly, the cross reveals a plan. And thirdly, the cross reveals a person. So the cross reveals a problem. On the 13th of April 1970, Houston, we have a problem, were spoken by astronauts on the Apollo 13 mission to the moon. These words became iconic. In fact, when we couldn't open up this morning, Nigel on his phone said, Houston, we have a problem. This was a movie that starred Tom Hanks, and he played the part of Commander Jim Lovell. Now, some problems are big, some problems are small, and some problems are huge and serious. And the problem for those astronauts was huge. It was life threatening. They were losing oxygen and they were slowly dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. So theirs was a huge problem. And thankfully, as we know from history, it was a problem that they were able to solve or the people at NASA were able to solve. And you know, mankind has a problem. You have a problem this morning. The Bible tells us and the cross reveals to us that we have a problem. And we have to go back right to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, to find out where it started. God created Adam and Eve to live in perfect harmony with God in the garden under his loving and perfect rule. But he gave them one command, and that command was this from Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now we know what happened, don't we? They both ate of the fruit of that tree. They disobeyed God's command. And the reaction was one of shame. When God found them in the garden, they tried to hide from God. They were ashamed because they had disobeyed their creator. And because of that, they were cast out of that garden. They were separated from God, from his presence. And Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 tells us the consequence of their actions. It tells us that just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death has come to all people because all have sinned. So the cross reveals to us that our biggest problem here today and for the whole of mankind is a problem of sin. But what is sin? You know, it's a word that's not very often used in our culture today, in our language. And yet the whole of the Bible, the whole of human history, as presented in the Bible, is man in a state of sin, and rebellion against God and of God's plan to save him, to redeem him, to bring him back to himself. The theologians define sin as follows, as any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Or another way of saying it, is any act or thought that is against the way God wants us to act or think. Our sin, you see, has a great effect on our relationship with our Creator in a number of ways. As we've been reminded in our songs this morning, it's very serious. Uh, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, we are, we are basically told that we are guilty of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. So our sin has a great effect on us. It shows that we are guilty. It also alienates us from God. Just as Adam and Eve ran from God in the garden and were estranged from his presence, we are no longer in that intimate relationship with our Creator. And the tragedy is that our sin makes us want to remain outside of that relationship. We actually want to stay away from our Heavenly Father, from our Creator. We believe the lie that to be free of God's rule brings us true freedom. We like to call the shots. We like to decide how to live our own lives. And this is clearly evident today, is it not? Because the majority of people in the world live their lives without any regard to God. They make their own decisions. They decide their own priorities. In the words of Frank Sinatra, they do it my way. But our sin also enslaves us. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, we read these words. 
At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Bob Dylan wrote a famous song, You've Got to Serve Somebody. And this song highlighted the fact that every one of us is a slave to something or someone. The Bible tells us, and the cross reveals to us, that we are slaves to our sinful natures. Our desires are the things that imprison us. The things that we choose, that we believe can control us, that we can control, actually become our masters. The Apostle Paul highlighted this struggle with sin in his own heart in Romans chapter 7. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Our conscience tells us what choice we should make, but our minds tell us we would rather choose another. Another course, another action that satisfies the desires of our own hearts. We are enslaved by what we want. And ultimately, we want independence from our Creator. We want to be God, to be King of our own lives. But our sin also defiles us. It makes us unclean, our hearts. Jesus had much to say about this. Within the Old Testament, there were various rules and regulations that made a person religiously unclean so that he couldn't come into the presence of God. If you touched a certain animal or if you had a certain infection, these things could make you unclean. And that person would have to go through a ritual washing before they could enter the presence of God, before they could go back into the temple. But Jesus went even deeper, did he not? He said the problem is not on the outside. The problem is on the inside. It's our hearts that are unclean before God. And it's the attitudes of our hearts, the sinful desires of our hearts that separate us from God. So sin is the problem that the cross points us to. Now, this can be a rather painful truth. I mean, most people say that if, uh, before you can solve a problem, you need to accept that you actually have a problem. And for every person who is a Christian this morning, at one stage in their lives, they came to a point where they accepted that they were a sinner before God. And it's painful to realize you're in that position. But we are. Uh, you may have seen the story of Jo Cameron, the Scottish lady from Inverness, on the BBC recently. She's one of only a few people who feels no pain. This only came to light because uh, when she was seen by her doctor, he discovered that she'd never had any pain medication. She gave birth to children and felt no pain. She broke her arm and felt no pain. She had a serious hip problem and felt no pain. She even describes at one point she had her arm on the cooker and it was burning and she felt no pain. It was only when her other senses came into play that she realized 
she had injured herself. Now, on the face of it, no pain sounds absolutely great. But actually, it's not. Because pain points us to the fact that there's a problem. And many people, in a spiritual sense, are like Joe Cameron. We really don't think we have a problem. We really don't see ourselves as sinners. We, we don't see that we have any real need of God, that there's nothing to worry about. Jesus once said to people who were judging him, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you feel your need of God this morning? That's something you have to think about this morning. The cross reveals to us that we have a problem, and it's a problem of sin, and it's serious. But secondly, the, cro the cross reveals to us that God had a plan. Humanity's sin caused God a seemingly impossible dilemma. But it was a dilemma that he always knew how to solve. He knew how to show us mercy without undermining his holy justice. His perfect plan was to enter our world and to deal with this problem once and for all. It was a radical plan, but it was a uniquely simple plan because he would send his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into this world to die for us on a cross. That is why Jesus is described as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And again in Mark's Gospel, Jesus himself said these words, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this was God's plan to bring salvation to the world through his Son. And throughout the whole of the Bible, we have different passages that point us to this. And probably one of the most famous is found in Isaiah in chapter 53, written by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before these events, where it describes the suffering of God's servant. And it's a prophetic verses about the actual suffering of Jesus on the cross. And this is what it says. I won't read it all. It says it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see, Jesus was committed to this plan of salvation. He was a deliberate sacrifice on the cross. He was a willing sacrifice. Even on the cross, in our passage, if you turn to it now, uh, Matthew 27, he was tempted to come down from the cross. Uh, we read earlier on, he resisted the temptation to come down from the cross. Those who were passing him by, they were telling him, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. But he didn't. 
You see, those who mocked Jesus were effectively asking him to prove to them that he was God, that he was the Messiah. They were implying, they were implying that it was weakness that kept Jesus on the cross. But in actual fact, my friend, it was strength, strength that kept Jesus on the cross, the strength of love for sinners. You see, the cross can leave us in absolutely no doubt that God loves you. You are worth it to God. You're not worthy, but you're worth it. My friend, there is nothing in me, nothing in my heart or character that says to God, I am worthy of his love and mercy. Absolutely nothing. But I am worth it to God. You see, the value of something is not in the item or the person themselves. It's the value that someone places on it. I spoke with an elderly man a few days ago who uh, came to the police counter at Rygate. And he was very upset because he had lost his late wife's wedding ring. They had been married for 40 years, and he said, I've lost it. And he was wondering whether it had been handed in. Now, if anyone had found that ring, it would be of little value to them. It would mean nothing to them. But if that person found a ring, he would be overjoyed, because it reminds him of someone he deeply loved. This is how God sees you this morning. You are someone that is precious to him. He's proved that by sending his son to die on a cross for you. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But you are worth it. You are worth it. So the cross reveals to us that we have a problem a problem of sin. But it also reveals to us that God has a plan, a plan to save us through the death of his son. But the cross also reveals to us a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, when he died on that cross, achieved for us something that we could never do. Turn to your passage in uh, verse 27. The first thing he achieved for us is that he paid a penalty due for our sin. We read in verse 45 that darkness came over all the land. What happened during those three hours of darkness? From 12 till 3, what happened? There are accounts when God has brought darkness over the land previously in other parts of the Bible. For example, he brought darkness over the land of Egypt um, in Exodus when the people were captives in Egypt. And in the book of Amos, when God is about to judge his people, he says that he was bringing judgment on them for their sins and that he would bring darkness over the land at noon until broad daylight. Until He would darken the land at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. 
So darkness in Scripture is very often used as a symbol of God's judgment upon sin. And this is what happened here. This terrifying darkness was a symbol of God's judgment upon our sins. His anger, his holy justice, as it were, was burning itself out into the very heart and body of Jesus so that he, our substitute, suffered the most indescribable agony as he took on the sins of the whole world. He was being made sin. He was being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. God was placing upon his son the iniquity of us all. You see, only Jesus could pay that penalty because he lived in every way a perfect life in thought and deed. He was the perfect substitute, the spotless Lamb of God who would shed his blood that cleanses us from the guilt of our sin. We can never understand the spiritual agony that Jesus must have felt on the cross because in those three hours he was separated from his Father. He had never known that. That is why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew something. He experienced something that he had never experienced before. He became sin. He suffered for every sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed. He did that for you and he did that for me. So he paid a penalty that we could never pay. He also gave us a status that we could never achieve. The Apostle Paul tells us that on the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and that this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross makes it possible for us to be declared righteous before a holy God. You see, faith in Jesus is more than head knowledge. It is trusting in a living person for the forgiveness of our sins and for eternal life with God. It involves heartfelt sorrow for sin and a sincere commitment to turn away from a sinful life and to walk in obedience to Christ. And those who do this, who put their faith in Jesus Christ, are declared righteous before God. They are justified. This is a legal term. It's a status. God is not saying that we are without sin because we know we're not. We still battle with sin. But God has said that we are justified. So we can echo the words of the Apostle Paul that there is truly no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is great news. Our status if we are Christians is that we are justified before God. He doesn't see our sin. He only sees the righteousness that Jesus has purchased for us. 
Jesus also achieved for us divine access. You'll notice here in our passage that Jesus said his last words. And it's, it's been recorded in John's gospel that he said, it is finished, that he gave up his spirit and the curtain in the temple of God was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple was the, was the place where people came to worship God. It was at the heart of the Jewish community. It symbolized God's presence with his people. But at the same time, it also symbolized that there was a problem. There was a massive no-entry sign because only one person could enter uh, that part of the temple to offer a sacrifice for sin. That was called the Day of Atonement. And only one person could do it, the high priest, and he could only do it at one time of the year on the Day of Atonement. And that priest had to be clean. He had to go through a ritual cleansing to cover his own sins. But when that curtain was torn in two, Jesus is showing to us that our sins have been covered. They have been paid for. The debt has been paid. And it opens up a wonderful, the wonderful truth that we as Christians can come into the presence of God because we have been cleansed. God no longer sees our sin. He sees the righteousness of our Savior. So the cross achieved for us and Jesus achieved for us divine access to our Heavenly Father. And his death achieved a great victory. As I said at the beginning, this is why we celebrate the death of Jesus, because it achieved a great victory. Uh, Waterloo has become a byword for, uh, for great victories in British military circles. The Battle of Waterloo marked a decisive defeat for Napoleon. So much so that even today, if someone suffered a defeat, we might say he has met his Waterloo. So it's something that's ingrained into our culture. And then those days without mobile phones or computers, communication would be by semaphore. So it would go from lookout to lookout. And, it, and the story is told that when this, after the Battle of Waterloo, as one of the ships approached uh, Winchester, uh, the person signalled Wellington. That was the first word that was heard. Then he signalled the second word, which was defeated. And at that moment, a great fog came down over the land. The people descended into gloom. They believed that Wellington had been defeated. But when that fog lifted, the other two words came through, defeated the enemy. You see, the cross must have seemed to those disciples like a great defeat for the followers of Jesus. They had put their hope in this person, and yet here he was, crucified on a cross. But the cross was his greatest victory. Let's pray.